Our sermon passage today is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and who we are in you. So I pray as we look into the treasures of your word, that you would move by your spirit now to open the eyes of our hearts to see your uh, glory and see your great love for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't know if you ever watched the show 24. When I say 24, you may know what I'm talking about. It was on for a while. But if you haven't, it followed a character named Jack Bauer. And Jack Bauer, he was a, I think, CIA operative. He was a counterterrorism agent. And each uh, season of the show was a one day. So there would be 24 episodes in a season, and each individual episode was an hour in his life. And what it was following was Jack would be called upon to stop this big terrorist attack that's going to happen. And you would follow the drama, and you would follow after, um, you'd follow after Jack in that. Now, over time, the show was a massive hit, and there were like 192 episodes. So 192 hours in Jack Bauer's life. Now, I want you to imagine if somebody followed you around with a camera for 192 hours. Even on a big dramatic day, what would they see? Um, well, I'll leave that question in the air. Um, but over time, as 24 became a big hit, fans started to joke amongst themselves, and they realized that in all of those 192 hours, there's a couple things you never see Jack Bauer do. You never see Jack Bauer stop to eat, you never see him stop to take a nap or sleep, and you never see him go to the bathroom. In fact, it was to the point that Kiefer Sutherland, the actor who played Jack Bauer, in an interview said there are two things that Jack Bauer never does. Number one is show mercy, and number two is go to the bathroom. <laughs> but of course he didn't, right? He's a counterterrorism agent. He has this incredible mission. He has to work, and it's all on his shoulders. Of course he can't stop. If you were watching 24 and there was a scene of Jack Bauer curled up in his bed or, you know, Jack Bauer at a Chili's eating appetizers, you'd yell at the screen, what are you doing? 
There's stuff you've got to do. There's a mission that is too important for you to stop and eat and stop and sleep. The mission entirely rests on his shoulders. And if he stopped to do any of those things, he'd just be selfish, right? I bring this up because our passage this morning is one that has confused people for hundreds of years. I always, uh, when I'm doing sermon preparation, I always look at a few different books over time and uh, commentaries where people have looked at the scriptures and they're explaining what happened. And this passage in particular is one that a remarkable amount of people have read this passage and said, this is complete apostasy. The disciples have abandoned their mission. And the reason they say that is because in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He appears to them, and he gives them this incredible mission. This in, he says, peace be with you, so he confirms to them that he is for their good, he is coming to forgive them, and then he gives this incredible mission for them to be his ambassadors in this world. And there's almost, uh, if you're reading through John chapter 20, you would expect to turn the page, in John chapter 21, you find something like, and the disciples went into all the world, and without resting, they spoke to everybody about the grace of Jesus, and the world was turned upside down. But you don't. You turn the page to chapter 21, and you find them going fishing. Going fishing. And like I said, there's a lot of people that have said the only reason these guys could be going fishing is because they've abandoned this mission at the very beginning. They've forgotten what Jesus has done that quickly, and they've just you know, decided to do something else. Now, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right at all. I don't think we find the disciples abandoning their mission at all. I think we find the disciples actually discovering something profound that Jesus seeks them out and is with them in the ordinary. That he is not just the Jesus that appears to them in the heady environment of Jerusalem at Passover, that he is Jesus who seeks them out in the very ordinary place of their hometowns, doing the most ordinary thing in the world. He is the Jesus who seeks them out in their ordinary. And I think he does this because Jesus needs to let them know that the disciples, even with this great mission, they don't need to prove themselves to Jesus. They don't need to prove themselves to him. Jesus seeks them in the ordinary. He does not ask his disciples to be many Jack Bowers running around, burning out and used up for the sake of the mission that he's called them to. And that's true for us. That's true for us no matter what God has called us to do, whether your calling right now is to serve your community in some kind of official role, or your, your calling right now is to serve your family and caring for a household, or whatever it may be. Jesus does not call you to burn the candle at both ends because it's a worthy mission. No, Jesus is with us in the ordinary. He guides us in the ordinary, and he nourishes us in the ordinary. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, in our first section is this, Jesus is with us in the ordinary. The disciples had had, like I said, just one of the most dramatic experiences in history. They'd watched their entire world fall apart in the span of a few days. Jesus had been crucified. They've scattered and run in fear. They're locked behind this door. And Jesus comes and appears to them after he's risen from the dead, and he declares God's peace to them. It's the most dramatic moment, the most uh, you know, mountaintop experience in human history. 
It's this supernatural uh, moment that changed the trajectory of their lives entirely. And then he told them they're going to be his ambassadors. They're going to be the ones entrusted with this message to go into all the world and tell people Jesus is alive and that changes everything. It turns the world upside down. And like I said, we might expect the next thing we read is they, they work tirelessly. They burn the candle at both ends because this mission is worthy. But as I said, we turn the page and these spirit-empowered ambassadors of Jesus have gone back to their hometown and they're fishing. They're fishing. Now, the disciples were remarkably ordinary guys, completely ordinary guys. They were from a region in uh, Israel called Galilee. And the ordinary trade in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, they're just the same place, was fishing. And most of the disciples were fishermen professionally before Jesus had called them to follow him. So these were ordinary guys going back to their ordinary small towns, doing the most ordinary thing. They're not in a big important place like Jerusalem anymore. You may remember a few weeks ago I talked about Jerusalem at Passover at that time in history would swell to maybe three million people at Passover. So, you know, most people they'd ever been around. It's a heady time, a dramatic moment. But now they're back in the Monday through Friday, most ordinary thing they can think of, fishing on the sea where they had fished and swam their whole lives. They're not doing something super spiritual. And what they find is that the Jesus who met them in that important place of Jerusalem to show himself risen from the dead and give them this life-changing mission is the same Jesus who shows up in their ordinary lives in the open air of Galilee. Jesus is with us in the ordinary. We may have big, dramatic, emotional, religious experiences in our lives, and those are good. Those are good things. And the grace that fills our hearts with joy in those dramatic moments of life is the same grace that sustains us on a random Tuesday. When we're working on a spreadsheet, when we're making sandwiches for lunch, when we're selling cell phones, when we're dealing with subcontractors, when we're meeting with patients, or when we're taking tests at school, we don't have to do something remarkable to get God to notice us. We don't have to go somewhere remarkable to find that He is with us. No, Jesus seeks us in the ordinary. And knowing that is part of what can sustain us in our life when we are doing those so-called great things for God and for others. To know that He's not waiting for us to prove ourselves. To know that He is not at some distant place and waiting for us to go to Him. He comes to us. Knowing that he is not waiting for us to prove ourselves to him is the greatest foundation for us when we are in those seasons where things are difficult. He's with us in the ordinary. And that brings me to my next section. Jesus guides us in the ordinary. So again, these were fishermen. And they're on the Sea of Galilee, a place where they had grown up. They were the experts at the fishing holes on the Sea of Galilee. They had been there Every day, just about of their lives, they knew where to go to find fish. But what happens in this passage, they fished all night, and they had the frustrating experience of not catching a thing. 
seven professional fishermen in a boat and they can't catch anything. It's like a master carpenter suddenly being able to un unable to hit a nail on the head. And they've tried all night. They've been out there all night, which wasn't odd. That was actually one of the best times to fish on the Sea of Galilee at the time. And the sun is starting to creep up and I'm sure they're frustrated. And they look up and there's somebody on the shore. We know it's Jesus. They don't realize that yet. And he calls out, there's, this is almost comical. Jesus calls out, hey, have you caught anything? And they say, no. And then Jesus gives him advice. Hey, throw your net on the right side of the boat. Now, I'm sure in that span of time, fishing all night, they had tossed that net on the right side of the boat a hundred times. It's not like they had just focused on the left side. They had been out there, and they had probably tossed it on the left side, uh, the right side, the front, the back, and they were beyond frustrated. But they, you know, for whatever reason, they humor him, and they toss that net to the right side. They listen to what he says, and following the words of Jesus, they wind up catching so many fish in their net that they can't even haul the, the net into the boat. It was so many fish that somebody along the line stopped to count them. We, they tell us it's 153 fish. So what's going on here? I think what's happening is they are learning that following after Jesus will mean listening to him in every area of their lives. It will mean Jesus guiding them in the ordinary stuff that they think they could probably do without him. Depending on him and listening to him even in the areas of life that are ordinary and that they think they could do without any instruction. Now, this doesn't mean that for the rest of their lives, every time these guys got on a boat, they thought, Lord, which side of the boat should we? They didn't, you know, pray, should we toss it on the right side or the left side today? Um, no, I think that this right here was more like a parable, a lesson that they lived out that reverberated into the rest of their lives. Our calling to respond to the grace of Jesus for us and obey his words isn't just limited to the so-called religious matters. It impacts every part of our lives. He guides us, not just in what to believe. So it's not like Jesus just arrives and gives us the right doctrine to confess. No, he guides us in how we do our jobs. He guides us in how we relate to friends and enemies and family members. He guides us in how we parent and how we respond to our parents and how we spend our money, how we spend our time. He guides us in all of our lives. He's with us and seeks us in the ordinary, and he guides us in the ordinary. Now, it doesn't mean that we become people that, you know, we're driving down the road, we stop at a stop sign, and we ask the Lord, should I turn left or right? It's not like that. But it does mean that we become very purposeful about asking what following Jesus will mean in our ordinary lives. Because it's true. He said it earlier to his disciples that apart from him they could do nothing. They see that here. And the thing that they think they could do without him, fish, they've done it their whole lives. It's true of us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That we experience any goodness or success in our lives, it's all because of grace there's no such thing as a self-made person. We are utterly dependent on him. And the Christian life following after Jesus is a long learning of that truth. 
that every good thing in my life is a gift. Not something I earned and so something I have to grab a hold of and keep. Every good thing in my life is a gift. And every good thing that God gives me is not truly mine first, it's His. It's His, given to me on trust that I use it for His glory and the good of others. You know, I heard a story from a a pastor um, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about, um, he had a mentor, so he was like 18 and, you know, got enough money together to buy his dream car, and he was really particular about his car. He didn't want people getting in their car with muddy feet, and he didn't want people, like, eating in his car, and that's not a bad, you know, take care of your cars. They're they're good. It's good to take care of your car, Um, but one day, his uh, mentor, his pastor, Asked him, well, what are you going to do if you see somebody in need one day? And he said, well, you know, it's my car. His pastor said, it's not your car. It's not your car. That's God's car. And he gave it to you. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to drive around and pick everybody up to take them on. But when God gives us something, he gives it not just for us to, uh, you know, take pride in it and say, this is mine. No, he gives it to us on trust that we use it for his glory and for his good. And that includes the very ordinary things in our lives. And that brings me to my last section. Jesus nourishes us in the ordinary. He seeks us in the ordinary, he guides us in the ordinary, and he nourishes and sustains us in the ordinary. So here the disciples realize, or uh, John, the disciple that Jesus loved, which I love that he refers to himself that way. John never actually uses his own name in the Gospel of John. When he refers to himself, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Um, I kind of love that. Um, But he realizes who has called out to them. And he says, it's the Lord. He's like, "Ah, look, he's here. He's not just in Jerusalem. He came to us in Galilee. And Peter, who's proven himself to be a very impulsive guy over and over, Peter like jumps into the water and swims the length of a football field. Like he doesn't wait for them to get the oars and paddle in. Like he jumps head first, swims in to get there as quickly as he can. And the rest of the disciples, well, they row the boat in and they're probably thinking like, well, Peter, we can't all jump into the water, can we? Somebody's got to row the boat. Anyway, um, they row the boat in and they're towing the fish beside them. And it's remarkable here, of course, that the disciples caught so many fish, 153. I think max I've caught like three fish, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not 153. Now that's remarkable. But after that, in this passage, there is not anything extraordinary going on. This is a remarkably ordinary and mundane scene. There's no miracle that happens when they come back in. No, it's the most ordinary thing in the world, breakfast. And what do we see? That Jesus cooks them breakfast and he feeds them. He doesn't say when they get the boat in, why were you guys fishing what are you wasting your time out here? Didn't I just tell you that, you know, you're my ambassadors. He's not saying you're wasting time. Don't you get, you have a mission to do? No, he meets them in the ordinary. He's guided them in the ordinary. And here he literally nourishes them in the ordinary. He doesn't chastise them when they get to the shore. No, he says, come, bring some of the fish you caught. I'll cook for you. and Here's some breakfast. You know, every week we pray the Lord's Prayer, Right? And one of the things we pray for is our daily bread, 
our daily bread. And you may notice when we pray through that, when I pray, I mention things like employment, ends meeting. I mention things like health, the daily things of life, the ordinary stuff of life. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus taught us to pray for not just bread, but our daily bread, is to train our hearts to know that in our ordinary daily lives, that's not something that God disdains. In fact, it's Him who nourishes us and provides for us and sustains us, not just in the big, obvious, mountaintop experiences of life, but in the ordinary Monday through Friday. And I don't just mean physically. Like Jesus provides food for us. He does. He provides for us. But I mean this spiritually. Jesus and his grace become the very foundation for who we are in our entire lives. Our nourishment, our strength, our identity. So that the question that we may ask, who am I, begins by first answering the question, who is he and what has he done? Do you sometimes wonder, I know you do, so this hypothetical question, do you sometimes wonder about your value and your worthiness? I think it's a common question throughout human, the human experience, wondering about your value, your worthiness, your place in this world. Have you often felt, and I have, that you really aren't worth anything? Maybe when you were a kid, your teachers or parents talked about potential a lot, and you you came to hate that word because it always meant that you weren't living up to the full use of your skills, your potential. Maybe you feel like you're very ordinary and the life that you found yourself in is too plain. Maybe you have humongous failure in your life. Maybe you tried to do something big and it blew up in your face. And whatever dream you had just withered to nothing. Maybe you felt like you need to go out and make something of yourself, but you ruined it. Well, the truth of the matter, friends, is that you do not need to make something of yourself. And I really want you kids to hear me because you guys are in school and you're doing all kinds of things where you're graded and you get medals and trophies for doing this thing and that. You don't need to make something of yourself. Because you already are something. You are somebody that Jesus loves. And your worth is not decided by you. Your worth is decided by Him. You were made by Him, and you have been redeemed by Him at the cost of His life, and that is worth beyond worth. Jesus paid for your sins with His death. He who is of infinite worth, the Son of God, moved heaven and earth to win you back. And in doing that, he has placed a value on your life that cannot be calculated. We are invited to live into this in all of our lives, in the ordinary. And so Jesus here feeds his disciples a simple breakfast. He nourishes them in this ordinary morning. And for us, he feeds us, our bodies and our souls, in our day-to-day ordinariness of our lives. And he invites us to live day in and day out what we just sang a little, wit, little while ago. That your value is fixed, your ransom paid at the cross of Jesus. You, you don't need to go make something of yourself. You already are something, someone that Jesus loves.
In June 1941, I've been reading a lot, you know, the joke is that once you, a guy gets 35, they either have to choose to get into World War II history or smoking meats, and when I turned 35, I chose World War II history. So anyway, uh, so pardon the, the World War II illustration I'm about to give. In 1941, Hitler and an army of 3.8 million personnel invaded the Soviet Union. It was remarkable. It was unexpected, and at the time, the, the, the Nazi army, the Germans, they seemed invincible. They kept going into places and just overrunning. I mean, they defeated the, the country of France in like six weeks. Just took them out. So he turns his eye and he turns this, this 3.8 million person army toward the Soviet Union. And it seemed like they were doing the same thing there. They advanced over this huge swath of area and took control and invaded. But the Soviet army was able to send battalion after battalion after them. Just people. They just put people in the way. And eventually, the Soviet army defeated the Germans. But it was not because they had better equipment. They very much did not. It was because they could send so many people in the way. In fact, there's an old, uh, it may be an apocryphal story, but that somebody asked uh, Joseph Stalin, the, the, the leader of the Soviet Union, um, what they were going to do in the face of this army, what they were going to send against them. And he said, well, let them choke on our dead. Let them choke on our dead. They could send so many people in the way. To put it in comparison, we know how large World War II looms in our imaginations in the United States. 419,000 U.S. troops lost their life. But do you know how many people in the Soviet Union lost their lives in World War II? It was 20 million at the low end. Possibly 27 million people. And that loss was so large because Stalin treated his people like they were things. That his mission was so important that he was willing to just throw his people in the way of the German army. I bring this up because I think it's easy for us to feel like God is really Joseph Stalin. That God is like a Joseph Stalin. That he has his kingdom and he's got this mission that he needs to accomplish. And he is coming against this world of darkness, the kingdom of darkness over which Satan reigns. And he's got this mission. And that we are like those Soviet soldiers. We're thrown into the mix of this battle, but we're really expendable. Almost like his approach is going to be, if I throw my people and they pour their lives out, I just chunk them in the way of this mission. They can burn out, and I'll just put more people after them. They'll burn out. They can go love sacrificially, and they're going to run out of money, um, but that's fine. I'll just send other people in behind that. Following God's calling on our lives, on your life, to love Him and love others well might mean a lot of things. It will mean living lives that serve Him and others well with all that we have and all that we are. More often than not, it will mean us staying right where we are and finding ways to serve and love there. For some of us, it may, learn, it may mean uh, learning new skills or even going to new places for a season or for the rest of our lives. After all, the disciples here who found Jesus in their ordinary are the same ones who later scattered into the entire, their entire known world, learning new languages, languages, crossing cultural barriers for the sake of bringing the good news of Jesus to as many people 
as possible. So following God's call in our life may mean a lot of things. But wherever it leads and whatever that calling may be, it will never be God using you. Uh, it will never mean God calling you to burning yourself out so he can toss you away. God's not Joseph Stalin. That's not how he fights this kingdom battle. It will never mean God using you as cannon fodder. I don't think that the disciples ever forgot this morning in John 21 when Jesus met them in their ordinariness and fed them breakfast. When they found out that Jesus loved them, not what they could do for him. May we never forget it either. Jesus loves you far more than he loves what you can do for him. May we never forget that. God does not disdain our ordinariness, so don't disdain your ordinary either. Know that he's with you in the ordinary. He is guiding you in the ordinary, and he will sustain you in the ordinary. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news that you are not sitting back waiting for us to prove ourselves to you, that you do not give us a mission that calls us to, to be destroyed in the face of the greater uh, mission that's in front of us, that you are calling us to mission. You are calling us to live sacrificially. You may be calling us to very difficult things in different parts of our lives, but that you love us. You love us. You see us, not just what we can do for you. So I pray, Lord, as we walk into the ordinariness of our lives, that we would remember this truth, that we would not think that we have to prove ourselves to you or make something of ourselves, but rather, Lord, may we uh, build our lives, our entire lives, on the foundation of your love, love that we did not earn and cannot lose. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.